All right, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see all of you here today. I'd ask if you please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to be reading a portion out of a very familiar story uh, to you, I am sure. 1 Samuel 17, this being the account of David meeting Goliath in the valley of Elah as Israel was at war with the Philistines. We're going to pick reading, pick up reading at verse 19 and read down through verse 29. We'll have occasion to look at the rest of this account as well, but we're just going to focus for our reading now upon these verses 1 Samuel 17, 19 through 29. As you're able, please, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper And took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle line, to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion... The Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So it shall be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. Now, I'm not forgetting that we're in the middle of a series in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, This is a little bit of a a rabbit trail that I wanted to to take to uh, refocus our attention a bit as we prepare to hit the next section of 2 Corinthians on our overall theme of this particular series, which has to do with tearing down strongholds. Now, last week we spent some time talking about the necessity of having faith in our ministries and Faith with, a, with a, a forward look as we long for home, right, uh, to, to 
remain faithful, to stand firm, to not grow weary in well-doing, and in every aspect of our ministry, uh, right up to and including the witness that we have, that we exercise all of those things that God calls us to do in faith, that the Lord uh, will sustain us and equip us and protect us. So as we think about that, and this particular passage, maybe as we go through, you'll see why my, my mind was drawn to this passage as a way to zero in then on tearing down strongholds. Because next week, Lord willing, as we get back to 2 Corinthians, we're going to talk about the whole idea of being ambassadors and taking that idea of witness that we talked about last week and recognizing that that witness is not in a a vacuum of just people who are all waiting to say, well, hey, please come tell me about it because I am ready to believe. Uh, Occasionally that happens and it's a joyous and surprising thing to us when it does. Uh, But nonetheless, most of the time we are giving out that witness during times of opposition. And certainly when you look at this passage here, of which we just read this portion, what had Goliath been saying prior to this portion of the account. He had been mocking Israel. He had been dishonoring God. He had been dishonoring God's people. He'd been flaunting in his arrogance, his power, and, and his confidence that he was able to, to wipe out anybody that should dare oppose him. And indeed, it was having its effect as Israel, uh, many of them stood there in fear. But let's think about this particular particular passage. And I want you to turn your attention there to verse 29. Now in the ESV, the translation is a bit different than what you may have grown up with and be accustomed to in the King James and others, uh, like New King James, New King James, and so on. Where in verse 29, uh, he asked the question, what have I done now? David asked this question. Was it not but a word? Which is... A, a fairly good literal translation of what the, the Hebrew is. Um, in the King James Version, those of you that have that, to say, is there not a cause? And um, so that's what I've done, actually, the title uh, for this message is, Is There Not a Cause? Which is um, an interpretation of these, uh, of the literal words. It, it's, it's, in the Hebrew, it's a difficult construction, and it's to our English eyes, it looks like an incomplete sentence, uh, not to the Hebrew mind, but it's conveying a thought of, didn't I, uh, isn't there some reason to speak? It's kind of a, an idiomatic sort of phrase. Uh, it was just a word. I had, there, there's, there's, a, there's a reason to say something. So why are you, you know, getting on my back, Eliab? is essentially this question. There was a reason to ask that question. There was a reason for what I was saying. Let's think about that reason. Remember, Goliath has been just taunting Israel and and mocking God. Hold that thought for a moment. Uh, Many years ago, when my wife and I still lived uh, in Tacoma, um, I received a letter from a seminary in Tacoma. It was happened to be a Lutheran seminary there. 
It was signed off at the end of this letter, and I, if I recall right, it was, it was like a fundraising sort of thing or some event or whatever. But at the end of it, it was signed off, yours for the cause of confessional Lutheranism. Think about that for a minute. Now, not being a Lutheran, that sentiment absolutely did nothing for me. Okay? Now, I'm not castigating Lutherans at this point. I'm just saying at that point, I, I wasn't Lutheran. I'm still not Lutheran. But I wasn't Lutheran, and so signing it off that way um, didn't mean a whole lot to me. In fact, it kind of irritated me. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, if a cause is so small that it only encompasses a few people who see it in a certain way, i.e. in that particular case, confessional Lutheranism, well then there isn't much in that cause for the rest of us to aspire unto, is there? Much less really address the larger eternal questions that face our world. So, hmm, yeah, what were those people thinking? <laughs> well... Just about the time I was feeling fairly smug that I had a more accurate understanding of the real cause than did the Lutherans, I started to consider our own testimony uh, and tendency uh, to, to view those outside of our theological circles with suspicion. I realized that we can be just as narrow in our view of what the cause of Christianity actually is. It's so easy to have the attitude that we're the people and the truth shall die with us. <laughs> but that attitude is sinful. Our theological position, and I say this deliberately, not just making you know, fancy-sounding rhetoric. Our theological position, beloved, is not the cause Neither are any of the other common peripheral issues, such as denominational distinctives of, of uh, practice and opinion, matters of Christian liberty, matters of eschatology, the doctrine of the end times, or forms of government, modes of baptism, and so on and so on. These kinds of peripheral things that consume so much of our time and energy as we battle it out with our brethren because we're lifting up those distinctives and even theological positions based upon the scriptures that we could point to and say, our understanding of those theological positions is our cause. Beloved, it is not. The truths of those theological positions speak to the cause. But our understanding of those things is not the cause. Now, all, most of you know that I'm not a, a big John Piper fan. But uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, he has written some good stuff, uh, particularly early on. And uh, one of uh, one of his books that I really appreciate is a book on missions called "Let the Nations Be Glad." And in the opening words of that first chapter, he makes this statement, which uh, has stuck with me through the years, and I really appreciate it. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exists because worship doesn't. And then he goes on to explain why do we go out into the world to proclaim the gospel to every creature? Well, it's because every creature is not worshiping the God who created them, is not honoring the God who created them, is because there is no 
there was little true uh, worship and honor and glorifying of the God who made all of things. And so what drives us is not we're going to go out just in order to, to uh, establish a new church with our name over the door. It's about the honor of our God. What is the genuine cause that we should be aspiring to? The, the ultimate cause. Those of you who are familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one should be able to pop this right off. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God, to honor Him. That is the real cause that we should be aspiring to. And that is the cause that David was, was lifting up. For many there in Israel, who knows what was going through their minds, fear, fear of the battle, fear of Goliath, um, hearing all these taunts, not knowing what to do. You know, you have to ask, where was King Saul? King Saul should have been standing up there going, Goliath, you're going down because our God is with us. And I'm going to lead the charge because after all, I'm the king. Where was Saul? He was in his tent. Where were all the other mighty men of valor? They were standing up there with their knees shaken on the other side of the valley. Listening to this. Yeah, okay, granted. He was a big guy. If uh, we understand what cubits are, about nine feet tall. He was a big boy. And yeah, he had a spear like a tree. But, uh, you know, you get enough... You get enough ants, you can swarm anything that's big and take it down. Israel should have just taken it on and done it, but no, they were fearful. David came up, saw the story, and asked the question, is there not a reason to speak? Is there not a cause? Well, let's think about this honor and what we see in these particular verses in, the, in this section, and we'll look at some other passages uh, or other parts of this story as well as we have an occasion to refer to them. So first of all, let's think about what God, defending God's honor requires. That's really what I want to focus on because we see it evidenced in David's demeanor here and, his, and what he does, his actions and his words. First of all, God's honor requires, and this is a word that uh, when you put this in religious circles, uh, some people recoil in horror uh, because of, of how this has been used among um, radical uh, elements of different uh, religions, particularly such as Islam um, and others. But God's honor requires militancy. It requires militancy. Now, why do I say that? Look at verses 22 and 23. Here you have this this situation, David is bringing food and other things to his brothers. He leaves all that and he goes out to the ranks to find them and begins to speak with them. And he observes what's going on. And I, I love what, how verse 23 ends. He sees Goliath, he hears Goliath, and he says, and David heard him. That is, there, there's a lot going on in those four words. It's not just Goliath's voice bounced off his eardrum, eardrums. This is David heard it in such a way that he took what Goliath said to heart. 
and it filled him with an indignation on behalf of our God. Why, why, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could just, just come to church, live our quiet little lives, and um, I'll talk about Jesus, and everything's wonderful, and everything's rosy, and we're, we're all going along well, and we never have to worry about anybody looking at us cross-eyed, or persecuting us, or wanting to shut us down, or telling us we're crazy, or whatever else. Wouldn't that be nice? Absolutely it would be nice. But you know what? It's not going to happen until heaven, so we might as well, you know, stop our pity party and get with it. Because as long as the Lord keeps us here on the earth, He's given us a voice, and there is a reason to speak out. And the reason, one of the reasons that we need to speak out is because there is an enemy. The enemy is our adversary, of course, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Absolutely. But it's not just him. It's also all of those who promote Satan's honor by denying God and exalting the creature over the Creator. Some with more deliberation and more rebellion in their hearts than others. But there is there are those who oppose us. There are those who oppose Christ. And so you can just roll over and lay down and go, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. Or you can recognize that there absolutely is something you can do because there is a, a reason to speak. There is a cause to speak for the honor of our God. But take a look at verse 28. Interesting verse with Eliab getting all frustrated with David. Now, earlier, you saw how David came down and spoke with his brethren. He found them, spoke with them, and you wonder what they were talking about. Perhaps you don't get any hint there that anybody's irritated with David for coming down. Why would they be? He brought them food. He brought them care baskets. I remember being in college. When, I, when I'd get a box from home, it didn't matter if every cookie in there was crumbled beyond recognition. Um, you, if it was... Uh, everybody in the dorm room would be there with their spoons out, ready to s shovel in the, the crumbs. I mean, that, that you know, nobody complained, right? Because you, it was it was party time when those kind of things came. And yeah, I can imagine that when David showed up, brought all the things that his father had sent, <clears throat> they were glad to see him. Until his responses to what was going on highlighted their cowardice. And now all of a sudden, Eliab, the eldest, decides to throw his weight around and, and uh, try to put David in his place. Did you notice earlier on that uh, David uh, rose early in the morning? This is verse 20. He rose early in the morning. He left the sheep with a keeper. Okay? So he was responsible. He took the provisions and went just as his father commanded him. He acted responsibly. He acted under authority. And yet, what does Eliab do? Who did you leave those little sheep with? You're just a puny little shepherd. What do you, you have no right to be here. Absolutely had a right to be there. He was commanded by his father. He was doing an act of kindness and he'd been responsible in doing all of it. Have you ever been misrepresented and accused of wrongdoing when you have done everything the right way according to authority? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Do you think the world will misrepresent you when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus Christ? Eliab says to David, your only reason for talking is because you want to do a looky-loo at this battle. You want to get all excited. You've got nothing to do here. Eliab totally misrepresents David. Totally. In every respect. Character, actions, words, everything. Motivation. When you stand up for the cause of Jesus Christ, you will be misrepresented. You, Jesus told us this was going to happen. You will be maligned. You will be falsely accused. That's the way it goes. Because the fallen world does not want to be confronted with its sin. Doesn't want to be confronted with its, um, its, its love of self more than love of God. Now, and particularly, I, it's not just the world, is it? Sometimes it can be in the church. Where others can misrepresent us when we're trying to, to do something uh, according to God's word to the best of our ability in righteousness and fear and we speak into the congregation um, whether individually or if you're in leadership in a more public way whatever it is uh, and people get misrepresented by the timid or the narrow-minded who seek to justify their own inactivity their own fear or their own position there's a lot of variety going on with Israel here in this story The 12 tribes are there. They're all coming from different perspectives. Surely in all of these armies from the various tribes, there would be somebody that would stand up and go, no, God is being maligned here. His honor is being maligned. And so is our name. Something needs to be done about it. And by the way, I think that I'll be the one that does it. But nobody does until David shows up. And then uh, his, his Eliab, and we may presume perhaps, that his other brothers perhaps followed suit with, with uh, Eliab's actions. Uh, David, uh, David's experience here living out the, the uh, well-known uh, saying that uh, no good deed shall go unpunished. Uh, that's what it seems like is happening here to David. So it, it, when I say militancy, I'm really speaking of, of a determination to speak out, a determination to do what God has equipped you to do and enabled you to do in an appropriate way, according to his word, and, and to, to, to speak into the situation and act in a way that brings honor to him without rolling over and playing dead to avoid conflict. That's what I mean. I don't mean by militancy going out and clubbing people over the head until... Uh, you know, is that another saying? The beatings will continue until morale improves. Have you ever heard that one before? Anyway, I'm not talking about that kind of militancy. I'm talking about the idea of a firmness and a willingness to confront God's enemies with his truth. His honor requires that. Look at verses 43 and 44. Uh, the Philistine says to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And he said to me, and he said to David, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. These words 
I, if, if someone had told you that, so particularly someone who's nine feet tall with a, a spear as big as a weaver's beam, um, is, is standing there in front of you and saying, you're dead, buddy. Um, what would your response be? Particularly if you're a boy who's only standing there facing him with a slingshot in your hand. A lot of us would have turned and walked away the other way or ran the other way. But David did not. He recognized that here is an enemy. An enemy that means business. You know, we love our comforts, don't we? We love our peace. We love all those things. But we have an enemy who means business. In every aspect of society, whether it's entertainment or government or literature or education or whatever it is, uh, the enemies of Christ mean business. They're not playing games. And just a little, you know, light touch, patty cake kind of approach to dealing with, with, uh, with the actions of the enemy in this world isn't going to cut it. We need, to, we need to be tearing down their strongholds. Is there not a reason to speak? It brings me to the second point. It's not somebody else's job. It's yours and mine. God's honor requires our personal involvement. There's, it's not, there is an enemy, yes. And because there's an enemy, there's a need for soldiers. Again, verses uh, back up in uh, 23 and uh, 24. Goliath comes out there and does his thing. And David hears him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. That's verse 24. Next week, again, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the latter part of the chapter and speaking to uh, the necessity of being ambassadors to call others to be reconciled to the Lord. Remember years ago, I uh, was contacted by a gentleman in Australia who was representing a group of churches there that were interested in affiliation with the Bible Presbyterian Church, but they wanted to know, he particularly wanted to know what our thought was regarding whose responsibility it was to evangelize. And um, when I said, it's every believer's responsibility to evangelize, he was like, no, it's only the pastor. Only the pastor is to evangelize. We're only supposed to be taught. And I said, taught to do what? To do the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? <laughs> it's... But boy, he was, no, he wasn't to be convinced. Their whole group there was like, no, it's just the pastor's job. The rest of us just get to sit there and learn. Uh, it didn't matter what, what uh, passages I brought out, including 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, speaking about being a kingdom of priests unto the Lord. Those, uh, the priests are those who intercede between sinners and their God in one fashion or the other. But no, that was kind of the idea. We are God's ambassadors. Certainly, we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul is speaking of himself and the other apostles in particular, but there's an application there for every one of us, particularly when you build upon other passages of the Scripture where, for example, 
uh, in Psalm 96, verse 3, declares glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. Now, who's to do that? Only the priesthood? No. It's all of God's people. So there is a reason to speak, and there, so there is a need for soldiers. And Jesus said, look up, look at the fields. They're white into harvest. Pray that the Lord will send laborers into the harvest. Back in 1980, spring of 1980, I was uh, having a bit of a crisis in my mind. As I was in, was in college, I'd finished my first semester as a pre-law major. I uh, discovered I didn't like accounting. Um, that didn't that class made me start rethinking <laughs> what what I was doing in that major. Um, and then uh, about that time in the spring. A message was preached in uh, at a Bible conference there at the school from Ezekiel chapter 22. You might want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 22 and look at verse 30. The Lord used that message from this from this passage in my life at that time to help me understand that He had something else for me to do. Than being an attorney. In Ezekiel 22 and verse 30, the Lord is speaking, and he says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Terribly sad ending to that verse. It was this, this. A reminder of the Lord seeking for someone who would would represent Him and defend His defend His people and defend His honor uh, that the Lord used to call me to the ministry of the gospel. You know, it's easy to look around and say, "Well, you know, Bob over here has a lot of ability in teaching, so I, you know, I'm sure glad he's doing that. I don't have to worry about that." And I have, you know, and even and this kind of goes along with everything. Well, um, Tom is just fantastic in doing, every, you know, any anything that has to do with handyman stuff, uh, carpentry, electrician, electrical work, plumbing, all these other things. Um, he's smiling back there, but he's good at those things, and he's good at serving others. I'm sure glad he is. So that way. Boy, that's great, because I don't have to do it. Johanna's really good at cleaning. I'm glad she is, because that way I don't have to do it. Sometimes we have that attitude, right? Because we look around and we see people that the Lord has gifted to do certain things, and we go, oh, well, that's me off the hook. I don't have to make any effort. And it doesn't mean that, that all of us have to do everything as our primary calling. But it is very easy to look around and say, well, somebody else can do the work while I just do what makes me happy. But there is an enemy, and an enemy that needs to be confronted. There is a need, therefore, for soldiers. It's part of God's honor not to sit back, you know. Did, did the Lord ever let anybody get away with those excuses? Moses. Lord, I can't talk. Okay, fine. I'll send you Aaron. Get with it, Moses. Jeremiah, oh, you know, Lord, they're not going to listen. Lord, uh, I, I can't do this. I, no, no, 
uh, Jeremiah, you better talk or I'm going to make you look like a fool in front of them. Gideon, Lord, I'm at least in my father's house. Like, the, like God didn't know that? And the Lord said, get on with it, buddy. I've got something for you to do. You know, these excuses that we make about how I can't do this and I can't do that are just that, they're excuses. In our various roles in life and places in life, we can all speak truth into the, into the hearing of our neighbors. To those that, that are trusting in other things, including their, own, including their own wisdom, their own intellect, their own education, or whatever else it is, if that's all that they're trusting in, of course they're trusting in the wrong things, they're not honoring God, they're honoring themselves. And that needs to be spoken to. Is there not a reason to speak? But let's move on to the next requirement, because this, is, this one is really important. Because it's super easy, right, when we're speaking for the honor of God to actually dishonor Him in the way that we do it. Or maybe not so much in the manner of it, but just from the fact that we are speaking it. I'm going to kind of walk you through this here a minute. If, if someone says something to you that's true, but they are disreputable, are you inclined to believe them? Probably not. Or at least not in the way they expressed it. You might, you might agree with the general principle, but you're not going to believe it because they said so. You're going to believe it in spite of them, right? As believers, as, so, as soldiers for Christ, we can often speak the truth out into the air, but because of our lives, because of our testimony, perhaps of what people know about us, perhaps about... Uh, how we how we act in our demeanor if we're cruel, if we're unkind if we're insensitive, if we're impatient or any of those other things we can say a lot of true things but what we say can be written off because we're not being holy in the way that we're doing it and that's the next requirement God's honor requires holiness not just saying stuff but to say it in the context of holiness look at verse 26 uh, David asks this question. Now, this is kind of an odd little section here. The men of Israel, having fled, they were afraid, and they said, have you seen this man who's come? And so verse 25 is, this is, verse 25 is kind of the rumor mill. All right, this is what's going around. This is a general statement of, this is what they were saying about this situation of who's, you know, what would happen and, to the guy who killed Goliath and the award, rewards and all that sort of thing. And then the very next sentence, David says to those, well, what should be done? It's like, David, weren't you listening? It's like, no, it's just that verse 25 is just talking about the general comment that's going around. And here David shows up and he asks the question, well, what's going to happen here? Why does David ask this question? Is it so that like Eliab is saying, you just want to see the battle, you just want to show yourself to be the big man, and da-da-da-da-da. No. David's question and his desire to speak is not for personal gain. I mean, he's, he's asking about these things, but his primary interest is not so much about that, but what you see in the remainder of that, remainder of that question. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Define God. David is ultimately motivated by God's honor, 
even over his own or anybody else's. That is what's motivating him. Because there is a name to defend. A name that is above every name. The name of our God, the name of our Lord Jesus, the name of the Holy Spirit. There is a name to defend. It's not our denominational title. A dear friend who's now with the Lord used to say that uh, the reason we have, the reason we call ourselves Bible Presbyterians is so that people can find us in the phone book. I mean, really, as far as that goes, I mean, obviously, there's more to it than that. But his, his point was, we need not to get hung up on our, our name and our identity and all of that sort of thing. We need to be hung up on and focused upon the name of our God. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, the Lord says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. His name is not to be sullied in the minds of, of, of others by our disreputable speech and action and testimony, by our misguided motives. I've known... I've known pastors throughout my, my time who basically had the approach to ministry uh, as a, I know there's an element where it's a career, but I hate using that term with it because it sort of breeds this, just this thing that I, I do, right? And, and and uh, I've seen guys not take pastoral calls because, after all, it um, wasn't the money and um, insurance and benefit package that they, they thought they ought to get, so they would go look for somewhere else, something else. Um, you know, that tells me that the name you're trying to defend ultimately is your own. God's name is to be defended. Again, missions exist because worship doesn't. People are not worshiping his name. They're not exalting his name. They're not honoring his name. And all that that represents, his character, his being, his actions, everything. But he is the one who redeemed us. He is the covenant-making and keeping God. He is the Almighty One. And therefore, he is holy. He is set apart from his creation. And we are to be set apart from the fallen world unto him and honor him in everything that we say and do. His honor requires that. There are plenty of, I mean, does anybody here, is anybody here unaware that there are, are preachers out there that dishonor the name of Christ? Some very, very publicly. And what does that do to the reception of truth from everybody else. It's mocked, dismissed. Just had a conversation not, not too much uh, far from those lines not too long ago. But the reason I don't want to believe is because look at the failures over here. It's like... And beyond saying, yep, it happens, and saying, nope, that's not biblical Christianity... 
Um, every time, I, I, it's true, but uh, I can't think of a time where I said, you know, that really isn't biblical Christianity that anybody went, oh, well, okay then, yeah, then I'll listen to everything you have to say. The, the, the stench of the hypocrisy is too hard to get over. Unless the Lord just does a complete work. Which he does. But nonetheless, his honor requires holiness on our part. Finally, his honor requires confidence. Confidence. Verses 34 through 37. Take a look down there. David is standing before, before Saul. Saul is going, okay, uh, you've heard, he's heard about this young man who's, who is saying some things about that, that Goliath needs, needs some attention and wondering why nobody's doing it. And somebody brings him to Saul. And uh, I, almost, I almost wonder, uh, it, it, uh, you know, he sends for him, but you almost uh, wonder if, if his brothers uh, were, are involved in this in any way. It doesn't say that, but I could see Eliab, particularly in his little tantrum, going, all right, I'll show this kid. I'll let Saul put him in his place. Maybe, I don't know. But anyway, they, they take him up to him, and Saul comes, and uh, David walks right up to King Saul and says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul's like, oh, wait a minute. You're, no offense, buddy, but you're a kid, right? You're not able to do this. You're not trained. You don't have all the things that you should have. He's been a man of war from his youth. David says, let me tell you a little story or two. I keep sheep for my father. And, and this is interesting. Did you catch a little word there? Verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep. Now, that may be, uh, th that's an appropriate way to translate that. Um, it, it also might be that he's saying, I'm used to doing this, or this has been my custom, this is, this is what I do. But uh, you almost get a sense, and by the way that this is constructed, that David might have a sense that uh, his sheep-keeping days are limited. <laughs> All right? Um, anyway, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. God's honor requires confidence. And confidence particularly in God, because there is a certain victory David, throughout all of this in his conversation, is not saying, um, because I am so great and mighty and powerful, I'm going to take down this nine-foot you know, living tree that's standing there in front of me. His confidence is in the fact that God is with him. That God is the one whose honor is at stake, and God will defend his honor through his servants. When you look at verses 47 and 54... Once again, the Philistine is mocking David, and, and David just says, you've got all this big stuff, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Wow. Can you imagine going as, as a young man armed with a sling and a shepherd's staff, going out and standing in the valley and saying, that whole army is bird food. And I'm going to deliver them into that condition. Would anybody think that David was being a, a might arrogant? I mean, is his arrogance just, any, is it any, any better than Goliath's arrogance? I would say to you that David is not being arrogant. Look how he ends verse 46 and goes on to 47. Why is this going to happen? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear for the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hand. David knew that his victory was not because of his prowess. He knew it was because of God's power. There is certain victory in this life. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, many turn their nose up at it, deny the finished work of the Lord on the cross of Calvary and his resurrection from the dead. And yet, as Paul tells us in the book of Philippians chapter 2, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the foundation of our confidence as we defend God's honor. Also to quote the apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in that great resurrection chapter, he says in verse 57, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we can bring glory to God because he enables us to do it. And is that not a reason to speak? Is there not a cause? So let me wrap up by asking you a question or two. What are you fighting about? Or what are you fighting for? What is your cause, dear friends? What is it that you find essential to speak about that's worth devoting your time and energies to? I trust it is the honor of your God more than anything else. Your God is bigger than your doctrinal system and form of government. He's bigger than your understanding of his nature and providence. He is bigger than any human authority. Indeed, he is infinitely bigger than the universe he created. There are genuine enemies of his name whom we, his foot soldiers, must confront as we strive by his command to tear down the strongholds of wickedness in this world. You and I must strive in holiness to defend his name in our words and in our conduct and to do so with a great confidence that he is victorious in our souls and victorious in all of creation. His honor and the worship of his name in his world is at stake. Contend, dear friends, for the honor of your God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this exhortation that we have by the example of David as he confronted the giant Goliath who defied you. Lord, you showed in, in David's weakness, you showed your strength. Lord, we are weak. We often don't know what to say. But Lord, there is a reason to speak. Help us, Lord, to correctly identify the cause and to not get distracted with causes of our own making that have nothing to do with your honor. Lord, I pray that you will be glorified in us. Help us to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered for the saints and defend your, the honor of your name in your world. 